Welcome back to episode five of Employment Law Problems, where I, your host, Brett Hollebeck, will be discussing some of the most challenging labor and employment law problems that human resource representatives, business owners, managers, and others face in the workplace. In this episode, we will be discussing the Supreme Court's 2020 to 2021 term, and in particular, we'll be talking about the labor and employment law cases that they decided this term and their effect on employment law throughout the country. And with that, we're going to go to the very first part of this episode. As I stated in this part of the podcast, we've been talking about the seven cases this term that I believe impacted labor and employment law. Maybe they're not traditional labor and employment law cases, but they will have an impact on the future of labor and employment law and some cases that are traditional labor and employment law cases that run the gamut of labor cases to employment cases. And with that, we're gonna be going into our very first case, which is Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid. And Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid was probably the biggest, you know, strictly labor and employment law case this term. It was a case discussing California's law California had a law that allowed union organizers to access the property of agriculture employers for up to three hours a day or 120 days per year. And the question was whether or not that was a taking, whether or not the government was basically seizing property, not providing uh, compensation under, you know, as required under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. So the question before the court was essentially whether or not these union organizers coming on the property or being able to come on the property for up to three hours a day for 120 days per year was a taking. The commentators on this case, you can really see the politics in this case. There are people that are on you know, one side that are basically saying that this is an indication that union organizing, union rules, you know, access, union access issues are shrinking and there's going to be less and less ability for union organizers and maybe even government officials to come onto the property and inspect because now they've got to give compensation anytime they do that. And I don't think that's the case. So, you know, I don't think this is a sky's the falling case for labor. Um, you know, I obviously represent management, so I've, you know, been on the other side of representing employers in union access cases where they're challenging whether or not the union you know, was unlawfully on their property or where the union was on their property or whether or not there were union members or employees, you know, passing out leaflets, flyers, whatever it might be. And in this particular case, it was a really special case because this is a very, very limited decision. It's not something that's going to impact traditional labor law. It's not something that's going to impact really anybody else but the particular employees in this case, which is agricultural employers in California, in one state. And the Supreme Court, I'm going to spoil it for you, the Supreme Court found that it was a taking. This was a taking. If you have to allow these people to come onto your property for 120 days per year for three hours a day, it is a taking under the 5th and 14th Amendment. The employers are not compensated for that time. And this is basically granting rights above and beyond what's necessary. And California had been making some arguments because that was the particular state that had this law that essentially these employees could not be accessed unless the union was allowed to come on the property. And when this law was created, when these rules were created, maybe that was the case. But 
now there are so many ways for unions to access and to provide information to employees that are seeking a union. That's really not the case that this is even necessary. It's a very special rule and it is a taking. There's no justification for it. At least that's what the court found, that the there was not a justification. That argument that they needed to be able to access these employees because there was no other way to access them kind of fell short. Now, what's important about this decision and why I say it's not really a radical decision, even though that's what you may find a lot of commentators talking about, there's a couple reasons for that. First, it only affects agriculture workers in California, and agriculture workers are a very special group. Uh, depending upon who they are, they're not even protected by the National Labor Relations Act. Um, so the NLRA does control access issues for the vast majority of employers, but it's really not going to affect these particular group of people, um, in particular because it's something very special. It's something that's very unique. And it's something that's outside the purview of the National Labor Relations Act. So this is not going to change union access issues for anything other than this very, very limited scope of California employers who employ agriculture workers. It's also not going to change the rules around government inspectors. Uh, you know, if OSHA shows up on your door, you're not, you're, they're going to be able to be there. You know, the court made several statements that basically indicated that. So this is basically just a very limited, narrow decision. But it does show something very important. It is critical for one reason. It shows where the court sits on the issue of labor law. It shows how the split may occur in the future. It shows what we're looking at in terms of future cases. And again, these are very political cases. These are cases where we have strong opinions on both sides. And in this particular case, you know, it was a very close decision. So Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett were in the majority. And then, of course, the dissenters were Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. So this was split totally along ideological lines, kind of what you would expect for a major labor law decision. And, you know, if, any another, labor, if another labor law decision comes before the court, we may be expected to go a similar way. The second case is another interesting case, California versus Texas. California versus Texas. And the finding, and it was really actually pretty simple. In this case, it was a decision about the Affordable Care Act. And the question of, again, is the Affordable Care Act lawful now that there's no longer a, um, no longer a, a mandate? In this particular decision, the Supreme Court held that the plaintiffs lacked the standing to challenge the individual mandate of the, of the law. Now, Justice Breyer delivered the opinion of the court, and Alito and Gorsuch dissented. And since the court held that the plaintiffs lacked standing, the ACA is still the law of land. Decision really doesn't change anything at all. Doesn't change anything in labor law. Doesn't change anything in employment law, or the employer requirements under the law. Companies are still going to need to provide insurance if they meet the 50 employee threshold under the ACA, and comply with the other aspects of the law. So the ACA stands. Uh, the plaintiffs lacked standing in this particular case to challenge the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act. Not really a major decision because nothing changed. And I think this is the way that most people felt that this decision was going to go. Most people did not expect the court to now suddenly overturn the Affordable Care Act. Uh, even though there's a couple of new justices on the court, you know, the balance has shifted a little bit more conservative. It's still just not a decision that the court's probably going to change their past precedent. The next decision is Henry Schein, Inc. versus Archer and White Sales, Inc. And this was a decision about arbitration agreements. And for those of you that may not remember, 
employers and employees, consumers, they can all form arbitration agreements. They can come to an agreement about how they're going to resolve claims between them. So your employer, if you're an employee, you may sign an arbitration agreement stating that you will arbitrate, you'll go before an arbitrator to solve the, the case before the court. Uh, instead of going to a court, you'll solve the case with the arbitrator. If you are you know, some kind of consumer, sometimes consumer agreements can require you to go to arbitration rather than going to the court system to seek relief. And this, this was a very kind of narrow decision. In this decision, the Supreme Court basically upheld, generally, the enforceability of arbitration agreements. And they found that when parties to an arbitration agreement delegate the issue of arbitrability, whether or not this particular issue can be arbitrated, to an arbitrator, so the arbitrator will decide whether or not the issue can be arbitrated, the court or a court cannot override the contract by concluding that arbitrability claim is wholly groundless. And this is not really a controversial decision in the sense that this was a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court. The liberals, the conservatives, whatever the moderates are on the Supreme Court, they all agreed. Everybody was in agreement. It was a unanimous decision. So the wholly groundless exception to arbitrability is inconsistent with the Federal Arbitration Act. Arbitration is basically a matter for the court of contract, and courts will have to enforce those particular contracts. Uh, now, the court does have the ability to determine whether or not an arbitration agreement itself is valid. So maybe there's some kind of issue whether or not the agreement is valid. Maybe somebody signed it under duress. You know, they had a gun held to their head, and they're forced to sign the arbitration agreement. Probably not something that happens very frequently, but it would be an example of a particular case where this arbitration agreement could be overturned. While the Supreme Court's generally in favor of enforcing arbitration agreements, a lot of companies are actually now moving away from arbitration agreements. Uh, some of them are finding them to be more costly than actually litigating court cases or even engaging in class actions in court. Uh, and the reason for that is in arbitration, companies will normally pay for the cost of the proceeding and their own lawyers. So, you know, they're paying for the cost of the proceeding, their own lawyers. Sometimes the company will also pay the lawyers for the employee or the other party or up to a certain amount. So, you know, there's a lot of companies that are facing certain claims and they've moved away from these arbitration agreements, probably due to the cost of the arbitration agreements. So uh, several major companies are moving away from these agreements for this particular reason. And I think that's a trend you're going to see in the future. We're going to see more and more companies deciding that arbitration is just not worth it. And you're going to see more and more companies deciding not to enforce arbitration agreements upon their employees or upon consumers or whoever it might be. It just If you are going to litigate a thousand cases, thousand claims, 75,000 claims, like some of these companies are, you know, tens of thousands of claims, you're going to have tens of thousands of arbitration fees to apply, tens of thousands of lawyers' fees to pay, and you can just maybe lump them all together and pay like you know one set of attorneys once for these huge amount of claims, but it's different than paying each and every particular proceeding for each and every particular proceeding. Uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. So last term, there were three different cases that dealt with religious issues in the law. There were three different cases, and you know some of the most interesting ones there obviously were the ministerial exception for schools, um, whether or not you know the ministerial exception applied to school teachers. So if the school teacher was a minister and could be fired even if they had some discrimination claims, and the court found that they could 
terminate those teachers if they're at a religious school and they are considered to be ministerial, uh, a part of the ministerial exception. All those three cases were in cases where the court upheld religious liberty and religious rights. Uh, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which was the case this term, this particular case concerned the refusal of Philadelphia to contract with Catholic social services unless the Catholic social services agreed to certify same-sex couples as foster parents. And this was a really narrow decision. The court basically punted. But again, it shows where we're moving in terms of religious rights. It was actually a unanimous decision. So even though it was, you know, it was maybe not as far along or didn't move the ball as much as the maybe some of the people that are in favor of religious liberty would like, it was a unanimous decision. And in that decision, the court ruled that Philadelphia's refusal to contract with CCS unless it agreed to certify same-sex couples as foster parents violated the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. So freedom of religion clause, free exercise clause. The court held that Philadelphia lacked a compelling interest to refuse to contract with CCS, with the Catholic Relief Services. The court found that the Catholic Relief Services only seeks accommodation, though allowed to continue serving the children of Philadelphia in a manner concerning uh, and consistent with its religious beliefs. It's not trying to impose those belief, beliefs on anybody else. They basically just wanted to continue doing what they were doing. Now, here's where this decision gets very interesting. The, the opinion basically indicated there were at least five justices that would overturn employment law, employment division versus Smith and replace it with a standard that's more accommodating to religious beliefs, which there's a lot of important implications for employment law if if something like that were to happen. Smith, of course, if we remember, was the Supreme Court decision that upheld the denial of unemployment benefits for two workers. They were fired for misconduct reasons. They were both um, Native Americans. As members of, you know, as Native Americans, they had religious beliefs, and they had a religious ceremony that involved the use of peyote. And in that particular case, they were fired from their employment for the illegal use of peyote because peyote was still illegal at that time and was legal at that time. I don't actually remember the status of, of that right now, but the court found that in Employment Law versus Smith, which is the prior standard, Employment Division versus Smith, that a person's religious beliefs do not permit them to avoid complying with an other law, otherwise valid law that controls conduct that the government has the power to regulate. So in this particular case, the government has the power to regulate the ingestion of illegal substances. Just because your beliefs require you to use those substances in a religious ceremony doesn't exempt you. That's the old, that's the standard that's still in effect today. So it doesn't target a specific religious practice, religious group, you know, it's a generally applicable law, and they found that it does not violate the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. So here's the problem. The court basically was a unanimous decision in this case. It, they required Philadelphia to obey their contract, essentially, and they didn't have a compelling interest to refuse to contract with Catholic Relief Services. Sorry, with Catholic Social Services, not Relief Services. That's a different, different, totally different group, you know, dealing with relief issues. Uh, Catholic Social Services. So this decision, you know, again, it was a 9-0 decision. Five of the people indicated that they would overturn. Five of the justices indicated they would overturn Employment Division versus Smith. So there's going to be a case that's going to come up that's going to challenge Employment Division versus Smith. And basically what, we, what I would suspect is that the court is going to develop some kind of new standard where 
you need to accommodate employees' religious beliefs in a better way. I don't know what that's going to look like, but one can probably presume that if you have some kind of religious ceremony that maybe requires you to ingest some illegal substance, but something that you've been doing, you know, your religious group has been doing for an extended period of time, that maybe that's going to be legal. And, you know, that's not going to be something that's going to be illegal. So Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, not a traditional labor and employment decision, but again, it's going to affect employment law. We're going to see more religious discrimination cases and religious accommodation cases come up, especially now that we had the Bostock decision last year. We're seeing more and more, com- more and more conflict between religious accommodation, religious beliefs, and some of those transgender, gender identity beliefs. But just also, too, we're seeing more and more emphasis on protecting employees and their religious liberty, you know, their ability to do things like this, which is, you know, engage in a religious ceremony that's been a part of their tradition for a long period of time, but may involve something that you know, maybe it's unlawful, or maybe it's something that is not, you know, it is unlawful, it would have to be unlawful, or maybe, you know, maybe something that the employer doesn't want. And we're going to see more and more cases of accommodating those religious beliefs. All right, National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Alston. So we're going to go on a Big Ten, Big 12, ACC, SEC, more Big 12, SEC tangent in a couple minutes. Because we're seeing some major changes around student athletes. I guess we're going to right now. We're seeing some major changes around student athletes. You know, we saw a few months ago licensing for student athletes. Now they're going to be able to, you know, benefit from you know these licensing agreements. This, you know, we've seen the SEC take a couple of uh, schools from Big Ten, Texas and Oklahoma. And let me just back up a second and get into the thrust of this case, and then kind of bring it back to this this issue of student athletes in the conference and what impact this decision has, because we're going to start to see, I think, student athletes become maybe more paid, maybe paid for their services. That's probably the next logical step after this particular case. So a National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Alston, the court held that the NCAA's prohibition on educated-related benefits, scholarships, for example, for college athletes violates antitrust laws. The AAA cannot place limits on these benefits. So schools can compete and offer better benefits for their student athletes. Now here's where this case gets really interesting. And here's where we see some of these tie-ins from the Big, the big Ten split. And the conference realignment of 2021, I guess, the NCAA. Justice Kavanaugh's opinion was really interesting in this particular case. So he wrote a concurrence. And in that concurrence, he basically laid out what we can expect to be the next steps that's going to happen in the next case involving the NCAA. Basically, Justice Kavanaugh said that under the traditional rule of reason analysis, and here's the quote, there are serious questions whether the NCAA's remaining compensation rules can pass muster under ordinary rule of reason. Basically what he's saying is that the compensation structure wages for student athletes is going to be challenged. So we're gonna see challenges to compensation rules for student athletes. That is huge. That is absolutely massive. Now, there's a couple interesting things with this case. And I don't wanna, I probably should mention why that's so massive. Obviously if schools can compete for student athletes by pay, buy more education benefits, 
we're going to see more concentration at the schools that are able to pay the most, schools at the top. We're going to see more and more money being spent on student-athletes, in particular in student-athletes in sports that generate, uh, generate revenue. So football is really responsible for something like 80% of television ad revenue for sports for, at the collegiate level. I think basketball is about 20%. And again, rough numbers. But when it comes to determining contract stuff, they're not looking at the non-revenue producing sports, the other sports. They're basically looking at primarily football, 70 80%. I think I've heard numbers of heard is 80%, and basketball is about 20%. So when they're signing those contracts, the Big Ten, the SEC signing contracts, that's the breakdown, 80-20, with the ESPN, Fox Sports, or whoever it's going to be that's going to carry their games. So there's a couple interesting things. This particular case was heard, I believe, about one month. The court granted certiorari for this case, which means they decide to hear the case. About one month before, according to some news articles I've seen, Texas and Oklahoma began negotiating to join the SEC. So about one month after this case was granted certiorari, which means that the court was going to hear it, Texas and Oklahoma started to negotiate with the SEC. Really interesting timing-wise. You know, maybe they saw something with this case. They felt that the compensation structure was going to change, and they decided that leaving the Big 12 was going to be the best thing for them. So the future of college sports, what's it look like? This isn't a sports show, but basically there will be compensation. We're going to see cases within the next couple of years challenging the compensation structure for the NCAA. Tanzan versus Tanvir. So again, not really an employment law case, but an interesting religious issue case again. So this is a case about a Muslim man who had his name put on the no-fly list despite posing absolutely no threat to the flights. And it was all because he basically refused to become an FBI informant and report on other individuals. He didn't want to become an informant. And so the FBI put him on the no-fly list. He claimed that this substantially burdened his exercise of religion in violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And basically, the issue in the particular case was whether the Religious, Religious Freedom Restoration Act allowed lawsuits seeking money damages against federal employees. And basically, the rules of the FRA within the statute itself, it entitles persons to sue and obtain appropriate relief against a government. The court held that this includes government officials such as government employees and appropriate relief and monetary damages. So again, this is a case about religious rights. This suing under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, obviously now they can sue federal employees and they can... Uh, obtain relief against the government that way. We're going to see this court is very favorable to religious accommodation, religious rights issues. So again, just another case that demonstrates how important those issues are to the court. A very technical case, TransUnion LLC versus Ramirez, TransUnion LLC versus Ramirez. And in this particular case, the court held that to have standing under Article 3, a plaintiff must show that they suffered concrete harm. In this particular case, there was 1,853 individuals that suffered concrete harm and had standing because the facts of this case are that their credit reports were shared by third parties. So they had standing and they could sue. There were another 6,332 class members who did not have concrete harm. Their reports were not shared by third entities, their credit reports, and so they did not have 
concrete harm, and they they basically didn't have standing. So the implication for employment law is that courts may be less likely to find risk of future injury enough for plaintiffs to have standing, at least under this particular article. Courts can be less willing to uphold a certification of class that lacks the same characteristics. So again, in this particular case, they found that you need to have concrete harm. And some of the parties did not have concrete harm, so they lack standing. So again, just a case showing how the court is going to look at these issues, maybe affect some class actions, maybe affect whether or not those classes all share enough characteristics to be members of the class or not. The final case is Van Buren versus United States. And again, this case doesn't directly affect employment law, but it does have labor and employment law applications. So this particular case, the court held that an individual exceeds authorized access when he, be, when he accesses a computer with authorization, but then obtains information located in particular areas of the computer, such as files, folders, or databases that are off limits to him. So they exceed authorized access when he accesses a computer with authorization, but then obtains information located in particular areas of the folder that are off limits to him. The court rejected the premise that obtaining information for personal purposes when contrary to contract or policy constituted a violation of the Computer Fraud or Abuse Act. The decision is really narrow. It doesn't cover people who had improper motives for obtaining information that's otherwise available to them. The courts uh, in this particular case specifically rejected the interpretation that Section 1030A2 of the CFFA, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, prohibits someone from obtaining information for their personal use when it's contrary to a contract or other policy, such as a workplace policy. So basically, under this decision, it's going to be more difficult for employers to pursue claims or charges against employees for violating the CFAA when they access documents that are off limits to them on a device that they're authorized to use. For example, by breaching a firewall, uh, going into a folder or document, or a document folder that's password protected. So it's a scenario that arises a lot of times in trade secret law. Uh, you know, when somebody's misappropriating trade secrets, but not something you're going to see on a day-to-day -day basis. So these are the seven particular cases that I think affected employment law this year. Again, not as interesting of a term as it had been in the past, but, you know, we are seeing some changes, and we're going to see every year there are more and more labor and employment cases. And with that, I'm going to go to the last part, the conclusion of this episode, and wrap it up. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode where we talked about the Supreme Court, some of the decisions that they passed, sorry, some of the decisions that they issued this term, and what their future effect may be on labor and employment law problems. And with that, I will catch you on the next episode.